0: We have agency, we have power over our, our cognitive destiny, which I think is not something that in the past was considered a possibility.
1: Welcome to Teach Me Something New. I'm your host, Britt Morin, and this is a production of iHeartRadio and Brit Co. All my life, everyone's told me I should focus on being good at one thing. But the truth is, I'm curious about a lot of things, but how do you learn about everything? The answer, make the world's best experts teach you in less than an hour. So come along with me as we all learn something new. In today's episode, we're joined by brain health researcher, Max
2: Lugavere. He's a documentarian and New York Times best-selling author of The Genius Life and Genius Foods and host of the hit podcast, The Genius Life. He's here to teach us how to optimize our brains so we can be smarter, less moody, and more productive. And he says it all starts with food.
3: Ange, do you ever think about what the phrase brain health really means? So honestly, no. I feel like I think about mental health. I think about physical health. but I, And I think about heart health, actually. Um, but I don't think I've ever thought about brain health. What about you? You know, As we started Britain Co.
2: so many years ago, I was so excited about figuring out how the brain does creative functions, and Mm -hmm. I started talking to a bunch of neuroscientists at one point because I was so excited about figuring out the data behind creativity in the brain, and it turns out
3: we hardly know anything about the brain, so I don't even know if there are checkups we could even get. I don't know. Well, do you think there are things that you do to help optimize your brain health? I mean, I know you're pretty into optimization. (laughs) I do love optimization. I mean,
2: (laughs) my grandpa, who is 92 years old, has done a crossword puzzle like every day of the last 50 years of his life. So something about that signals to me That keeps my brain sharp. My mom also randomly plays like free cell, like old school free cell Mm -hmm. on her computer still because she claims that keeps her brain sharp. So that's like Mm -hmm. one part of it. Puzzles and things like that. But then, I mean, meditation, is that a thing? Okay. Wait,
3: that- That definitely counts. So my family was a board game family. So I feel like games were always a thing. And I would say now in parenting, I'm like putting things together a lot more than I was for a while, you know, and even doing these like little puzzles and, and trying to explain how something works. That's not just innate. I actually feel like that's a good brain exercise. I'm fascinated to learn more about all of this. And we have Max Lugavir here, the expert
2: of all experts, who is here to teach us all how we can optimize our brain health. Welcome, Max.
0: Thank you so much for having me. What a what a privilege and a pleasure it is to be here.
2: Do you think we're totally crazy? Like, I don't even know if what we just said was on the right track at all.
0: <laughs> or If you're like, oh. No, it's. No, no, no. It's not crazy. In fact, it's become my sort of life's purpose to help educate people about the ways that they can keep tabs on their brain health and ultimately improve it and even, dare I say, optimize it. I um, became interested in this topic when my mother got sick. At a very young age, she developed a rare form of dementia. And I went around the country with her to try to figure out what was going on with her brain. I had no prior family history of any type of cognitive, uh, you know, neurocognitive disorder. Um, so for me, I was at a loss and I was, a. don't come from a, you know, medical, I don't have a medical background. I'm not an academic scientist. I was a journalist, but I had a vested interest. You know, the person who I loved most in the world was succumbing to very rapid, uh, brain degeneration. And what I was met with in every clinic that I was, that I, you know, had the privilege to be in, you know, sitting next to my mom, I've come to call diagnose and adios. So you're totally right that, you know, most people have no idea. In fact, an AARP study performed a few years ago found that 90% of Americans believe that brain health is important, which is great, but are largely in the dark in terms of how to maintain or improve it. But the reality is our brains are incredibly vulnerable to our diets and our lifestyles. And that really became where I focused my efforts, how we might live and how we might eat in a way that... Preserves our brain health as we age, as opposed to just sort of letting it diminish over time, which seems to be the norm today.
3: In your learning so far, have you found that it is possible to minimize dementia risk? And how can it help all of us have healthier brains?
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, to. Again, I think it's important to say that we're just at the tip of the iceberg in terms of understanding all the different ways and causes for dementia for each person. I mean, Mm -hmm. there are multiple types of dementia. But knowing that, today we're seeing epidemic rates of, you know, certain kinds of conditions, chronic, non-communicable conditions that are highly associated with our diets and our lifestyle. So type 2 diabetes, prediabetes, obesity, these are sort of the most common of them. Um, But when you are... A type two diabetic, your risk for developing Alzheimer's disease increases anywhere between two and fourfold. So it's a dramatically increased um, risk that one experiences, you know, for dementia, for this, for a brain condition, when they have, you know, a disease of the body. And so now, what we're starting to see is that the brain and the body are intricately connected, and the st- the same steps that we take to achieve a healthier body are all going to pay dividends in terms of your brain health down the road. You know, we can look to parts of the world where their diets have been less industrialized than ours, um, where they eat foods that are more sort of whole, minimally processed foods, and we see that they have dramatic risk reductions for conditions like Alzheimer's disease. What I've sort of made it my mission to do because, you know, I have a background in investigation, in storytelling, and because I, I have a vested interest in, you know, the fact that I now have my own risk factor for the disease, I've made it my, my mission to sort of connect the dots. You know, all these sort of siloed off um, findings and disciplines, uh, I've, you know, sort of become, I guess, like a walking meta-analysis so that I can communicate to people how, how they can, you know, take the science and integrate it into their own lives.
2: Ooh, you're like a brain researcher that can talk to people, <laughs> like real life yeah. people, not just in like scientific speak. I'm actually curious, is there an age where the brain health of a person peaks and then starts to deteriorate on average? And how does the fact that we're living longer than ever now coincide with that potential fact?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, so for the longest time, it was thought that your brain kind of peaked at around 25, you know, Um, that was sort of like when a person would mature, cognitively speaking, and your brain was at its sort of peak of efficacy at that point. And then it would basically begin this long and gradual decline to the end of your life. Um, But we now know that you can actually keep your brain youthful as you age, like the most vulnerable and vital parts of, of your memory your hippocampus actually we have proof that you can create new neurons new brain cells in that part of the brain. And so I think what that what that means and especially in the context of our increasing longevity is that we have agency, we have power over our our cognitive destiny which I think is not something that in the past was considered a possibility. You know, dementia, Alzheimer's disease, I think for a long time people thought that these were inevitable aspects of aging. And now we know that for the vast majority of people, dementia is something that we do have a say over. We have what are called modifiable risk factors, whether it's um, hypertension, high blood pressure, or chronically elevated blood sugar, uh, or education, or smoking, or things like that. There are things that we can do that can modify those risk factors so as to bring our overall risk level down.
2: And we're definitely gonna talk about some of those things, and specifically food. But as a quick follow-up to that, if Let's say I'm in my 70s. I've started to lose my memory a little bit. If I start doing some of these things, is it possible to improve my brain as a 70-year-old or is it something that has to be done earlier in life and over and over again habitually so that I never get to that point in the first place?
0: Yeah, that's such a good question. Um and the, you know, the the empowering answer is that you can, you're never too old to start making changes in your life that are going to improve the way that your brain works.
3: I think it's great to know that you aren't too late (laughs) to start to start making brain changes. So I know that food is a huge focus for you. First, what led you to food? And before we get into the good stuff, what are the biggest things you've learned about what's harming our brain in terms of what we put in our bodies?
0: Yeah, so I I've always been a nutrition nerd. So that's probably why I started looking into food first and foremost. When I began my college career, I actually was a pre-med major because I had been so passionate about Um, nutrition beforehand, but then I realized that when you go to medical school, you're only given one day, um, if that, of nutrition training. So that's why I didn't end up going down that route. But I've always had a huge passion for nutrition, and um, and so that's where I looked first when my mom got sick. And what I realized is that, I mean, there's a lot that's wrong about the standard American diet, and I think now for the first time, we're starting to see the consequences of you know, eating a diet that is, by and large, made up of ultra-processed foods, on our brains. But for a long time, you know, for for many years, we've known about what the standard American diet does to our cardiovascular system and to our waistline. So the foods that I've seen in the literature as being definitely worth avoiding, um, are primarily primarily ultra-processed foods, and these are foods that have like extensive ingredient lists. Uh, I tend to have a bias also for low carb, low carb diets. You know, I think that. Um, you know, we live in very sedentary times, especially today where people are spending more and more time around their homes, um, in our cars. Like, you know, we are basically inactive, especially in comparison to our ancestors. I think that the healthiest foods that you can, that you can bring into your diet are foods that are, um, basically whole foods, minimally processed and what, you know, lower on the carbohydrate spectrum. So foods like fibrous, Veggies, dark leafy greens, cruciferous vegetables, um, low sugar fruits like avocados, olives, bell peppers, uh, things like that are all incredibly, incredibly helpful. And I also happen to be a big fan of animal products, which I know, you know, are not for everybody. But I think, you know, when looking at the literature in terms of um, brain health and these these dietary interventions, I mean, they all include some some quantity of fatty fish. You know, so whether it's wild salmon or sardines, things like that, um, I'm a big fan there, and also eggs and grass-fed beef. Now, I'm, you know, the past couple of decades, it was probably really hard to be, you know, the eggs publicist or you know the publicist for the for the beef industry because it's you know both of those food categories have taken such a beating because of misconceptions I think surrounding those foods. So for me that. But that was a major sort of call to action to look into the, what we've long believed to be true about nutrition and to question everything, you know, and, uh, and that really is what led to me developing what I call the genius foods and my, you know, the dietary recommendations that I make.
2: We want to talk about the genius foods, but are you aware that you just said that the egg industry has taken a beating because that's an amazing quote that I think you should use <laughs> in all you. of your marketing materials? I
3: mean, that's your next yeah. book.
0: That is a good <laughs> pun. Yeah, you're right. I'm, uh, you know, I don't <laughs> normally think of myself as being like good at puns, but you're right. That's a good. That's a good one. I'm gonna write that down.
1: Let's talk about some of your favorite genius foods. Not just foods we should be eating, but eating in the
3: right way. And what foods do you think he's going to talk about? I mean, I'm obsessed with blueberries. I think that, well, you know what? I could talk about blueberries all day, and people tell me it's okay that they're the only thing my children want to eat. So, tell me, are these one of the genius foods?
0: Blueberries are amazing. In fact, I have a recipe i just snacked on these before i got on so i basically melt dark chocolate and blueberries are two genius foods they're great for for brain health yeah and i can i can get into why but before that so one of my favorite brain food recipes you basically i buy a really dark chocolate bar like an 85 percent dark chocolate bar and over a very very like low gentle heat i melt it down so that it becomes liquid and then you toss some blueberries in it and you take a spoon um, and you just spoon out like these like dark chocolate covered blueberry uh, clusters on on some parchment paper. and then you sprinkle with a little tiny bit of sea salt and you put them in the fridge and you get these dark chocolate covered uh, blueberries with like a little bit of sea salt on it. It's so good.
2: Wait, are these like blueberry clusters? Is this amazing. is the new like turtle. This is amazing. Yeah. I need to do this right now,
0: yeah. they're so good. They're so good. i'm I'm making them like every day pretty much. and And if you want to go, like, Pro level, you can stir in a little bit of lion's mane powder into it, which I also do. So I stir a little bit of lion's mane. Lion's mane is a mushroom.
2: Thank you. I wanted you to explain what lion's mane is because I don't think everyone knows what lion's mane is.
0: Yeah. So lion's mane is a – it's a mushroom. It doesn't taste like mushrooms. It's actually a very, very pleasant flavor, not mushroom-like at all if you have an aversion to mushrooms. But it's been shown to boost neuroplasticity by boosting nerve growth factor in the brain. Um, so it's being studied now for its potential to boost cognitive function and to enhance neuroplasticity, but you can easily find it now at some of these major health food stores as like these little elixir packets. So I open up a packet and I put it into the melted dark chocolate and I stir it up. Um, and then, yeah. And so you make these like little blueberry clusters that are fire. This is amazing. It's my favorite yeah, takeaway so far, so so This fire, is to happening be in my house <laughs> to be, tonight. Everything yeah. else
3: you said is great. Let's let's do a cooking show, like a brain cooking oh, show. Oh, yeah. Uh, brain. The genius chef, yeah. whatever. I'm so um, down. I'm so, so down. Okay, so here's the question, though. Why blueberries?
0: So blueberries are rich in compounds called anthocyanins, um, which are another type of plant pigment. Uh, that's why when people say eat the rainbow, you know, there's some wisdom to that advice. We we're already talking about carotenoids, which are a type of plant pigment. Anthocyanins are another, and you'll find them in... Uh, fresh produce that have those like blues and dark purples. Blueberries are sort of the classic uh, source for them. Figs, but You'll figs, find the same. Grapes? Fit. Grapes would not be – I don't think that grapes are an anthocyanin source. No, grapes are not um, anthocyanin. They're, they're usually found in like purple potatoes. They're in red onions. Um, they're also mm. in blue corn. They're more blue. Like you get them, you know, and sometimes it doesn't necessarily look blue because you've got other pigments in there that are uh, disguising them. Um, but blueberries are, and blackberries and bilberries; those are sort of like the classic source of uh, of anthocyanin. Wait,
3: so are purple potatoes actually better for you than non-purple? <laughs> I don't know what color <laughs> we sweet calling potatoes, potatoes. Yeah. like, or orange potatoes
0: yeah i would probably go for purple potatoes or sweet potatoes over white potatoes just because of that extra boost that you get white potatoes are not bad they're a great source of Mm -hmm. potassium if you cook and cool a white potato you get what's called retrograde resistant starch so it actually um, is really good for gut health and uh and becomes less you know it, it sort of doing that blunts the glycemic impact of the white potato Um, say, you know, you're, you have a serving of white potatoes that have 50 grams of carbohydrates, net carbohydrates in it, a proportion of that will become resistant so that you don't actually absorb it. The starch becomes resistant starch, which is essentially, it acts like a fiber. So you know how when you look on the back of um, of like a food product and it has like total carbohydrates and then fiber and you subtract the fiber to to get at your net carbohydrate um, content of that food? Same thing with like a with like a white potato. We don't really have a good way of measuring it. Um, but, yeah, so it, it, you'll, you're, you're basically absorbing fewer net carbohydrates from that.
2: What about oils? I've heard so many good and bad things about oils. Where, what is your take on all the
0: oils? Yeah, so I'm pretty um, adamantly against uh, the industrially produced grain and seed oils like canola oil, corn oil, soybean oil, grapeseed oil is one that a lot of people are confused about because it sounds vaguely healthy. Um, But all of these oils go through, you know, just this long production chain of processes to arrive at. And those processes damage the oil. Like if you look at extra virgin olive oil, on the other hand, humans have been consuming extra virgin olive oil for thousands of years, because to make extra virgin olive oil, you simply crush olives. That's not the case with any of these industrially produced oils. They all undergo a process called deodorization, which makes them tasteless and scentless. And manufacturers love this because, I mean, it's sort of like, you know, the culinary equivalent of the witness protection program. It takes these oils that would otherwise be really bitter and rancid tasting, right? Like oil from soybeans, oil from corn, oil from You know grape seeds which have tons of tannins in them which are very bitter right so they take all these oils and they put them through this through this process that makes them taste like nothing it's the same it's that's that's why you can use these oils in salad dressings granola bars they can they coat uh, nuts before they get roasted commercially um but the problem is that that process creates a small but significant amount of trans fats which we know is very damaging to the cardiovascular system so it's not good for your heart health but Heart health is of particular relevance to brain health because your brain is fed blood and oxygen and nutrients by this network of microvessels that are very small and delicate. That if you were to take out of your head and, you know, stack these little blood vessels up end to end, it would stretch out 400 miles long. So it's a very precious network that we need to preserve the integrity of, you know, and there's a there's a direct association between higher trans fat consumption and increased risk for Alzheimer's disease, um, We know that people who consume higher levels of trans fats also have worse memory function. So it's just not a, you want to avoid them to the best of your ability. And that's, you know, all that damage that occurs to those oils, that's before those oils are even bottled and end up making it, you know, to your local store. You have no idea how those oils are stored um, when they're shipped. They're also sold typically in clear plastic. So light and heat um you know are two of the primary catalysts that that can degrade an oil and all of these oils are vulnerable to degradation because of the just the chemical constitution of them and the fact that they're sold in plastic to me it's like you know manufacturers know that garbage in equals garbage out these oils were crap like going into the bottle and we know that that certain plastics can be dissolved in oil because plastic is made using using crude oil so The fact that you're like buying this oil in plastic, to me, it's just like a recipe for disaster.
2: Okay. So, but we should have olive oil probably in like a glass bottle and put it somewhere in the dark. Is that right?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Most of the time you're going to see extra virgin olive oil sold in dark glass bottles. I mean, sometimes with cheaper brands, you see it in plastic, Um, but generally they're always going to be sold in dark bottles and you should only buy them when they're sold in dark bottles and ideally glass. And that's because, I mean, an extra virgin olive oil manufacturer, they prize their oil. I mean, extra virgin olive oil is a fresh fruit juice and it goes bad, you know, because it's a fresh juice. You want to buy it in as small a bottle as you will be able to consume within a month. Um, oh, no. Wait, yeah, you
2: don't, uh, yeah. don't want to know how old my olive oil is. I don't even know how Wait, old my what? olive oil is. I well, Am I damaging that- my brain right now?
0: You're not. No, you're not. You're not damaging your brain. Um, but you, you know, if you can't, if you can buy smaller bottles, I mean, that's the way that experts would say to do it because, you know, oil is extra virgin olive oil is not like wine. It doesn't appreciate. It doesn't get better over time like wine does. It only gets worse, and it gets worse very slowly because it's a very chemically stable kind of fat, and it's got tons of antioxidants in it. So it's relatively guarded against. Um, Rancidity and decay, but generally, if you want like the best extra virgin olive oil experience, that I think you ought to have, you want to buy it in smaller bottles, and again, glass, darkly colored, um, and and even what what the purists will look for on the extra virgin olive oil bottle, if you want to make sure that you're really buying the best oil um, that you can afford, look for a harvest date, and the more recent, um, the more recently the oil was pressed, that's going to be a fresher oil, obviously. So that's what you want to reach for.
3: Just changed my life again. Thanks, Max. I am feeling very good about the olive oil game at my house. She's you get, very like, we actually get a metal oil. a metal container and then I put it in a little ceramic thing that I pour. Whoa! It through. Okay, fancy. Okay, what about snacks? What snacks are good for you? Almonds? What
0: else? Yeah, so I love to snack. I already gave you guys like one of my favorite new recipes, so that'll be fun to play to play around with. But yeah, no.
2: Wait, can we add almonds into the dark chocolate blueberry cluster?
3: Yes, yes. you That's actually great. can. Yeah. Okay.
0: you can totally upgrade it. I yeah, you can throw in whatever you want. I mean, once you realize that you just melt down like a chocolate bar, you know, and like throw whatever you want into it, it becomes a lot of fun. Um, So, yeah, almonds would be a great choice. I I consider almonds a genius food as well. Um, Almonds are rich in magnesium, rich in vitamin E. Uh, these are both, you know, really important and not commonly consumed nutrients, micronutrients that that protect your brain as it ages. Magnesium, in particular, is something that half of the population doesn't consume adequate amounts of, and it's used, you know, very in in a in hundreds of applications in your body, from the creation of ATP to DNA repair. You know, and DNA damage is at the root cause of aging, so um foods that are high in magnesium typically are going to be great for you and almonds I believe when you consume a handful of almonds you get about 25 percent of your uh daily need for it so almonds are great um other snack foods there's like wild salmon jerky there's grass-fed beef jerkies now available to people that are you know highly satiating I'm a fan of uh Greek yogurt I don't do a ton of dairy personally but I think Greek yogurt is a great you know high protein snack one of the things that I think is really important about um, protein is that it's the most satiating of the macronutrients. So if you're ever feeling hungry, um and especially for people that are looking to either maintain their weight or even to lose some fat, um protein is a very powerful tool because it's it it keeps you full. And the best diet for you is going to be the one that satiates your hunger, you know, and keeps you satiated over the longest, you know, time frame.
2: Can we switch to diets actually, because I know that, diet culture is and has been rampant for decades now. I've recently started doing intermittent fasting, which claims that you have more mental clarity. And I've actually found that to be true. I'm curious if that's like a placebo effect. Um, but, But also, can you explain the differences between the good diets and the bad diets out there?
0: Such a good question. Diet culture definitely, you know, sucks in many ways. You know, I think the pressure that it puts on women, that it that it basically exalts one body type, you know, as being the ideal feminine body. I mean, the the fact that it's, you know, that it preys on women's insecurities and men's insecurities too. I mean, that's not to I don't want to just discount the fact that, you know, there are a lot of men out there that have disordered eating now because of you know, how diet culture affects them. But diets like work, if you find the diet, the the one that works for you, you know, that's what it's really all about. And to not have a sort of black or white mindset about it to not, um, you know, feel, uh, I, you know, t- to not feel tied in terms of your identity to your diet, I think that's very important. Um, and to realize that, like, nobody's perfect. Like this isn't about perfection. It's about, you know, doing the best that you can by your body. And so the best diet for you is going to be the diet that you adhere to. And there are a bunch of different options out there. You know, I, I have a bias for low carbohydrate diets. I think that, um, they are the most satiating, um, you know, they, just because, you know, protein is very satiating. And when you're not, you know, on a blood sugar roller coaster all day long, um, I think that that can actually have a positive effect on your hunger. And then there's people who like to go really extreme and try ketogenic diets. You know, there is a hunger suppressing aspect of, of ketones, but you know, those diets are not the only way to, to, have a healthier body. You know, if your diet of choice happens to be a low fat diet, that can work too. What I like to tell people is that you've got the, the way to get there is going to be different for each person. We have some data now to, to suggest that people who consume ultra processed foods uh, tend to overconsume. consume. So basically by the time you feel sated from eating ultra processed foods, you've already eaten too much. Whereas whole minimally processed foods, They're very filling, you know, they fill you up. So you get that nice, satisfying stretch of the stomach, you know, that I think we've evolved to seek when we sit down at a meal. Um, So I think it's okay to feel full. Uh, But when you when you basically base your diet around minimally processed foods that you actually eat effort, almost effortlessly to your maintenance level of calories or even below it which equates to effortless weight loss. But at the end of the day, ultra processed foods are at the root cause of the obesity epidemic in this country. And um, and so it would be best to avoid those foods.
2: And the brain health ep- epidemic, <laughs> it sounds like.
0: Of course, and the brain health epidemic, yeah.
2: What about intermittent fasting? Am I correct in assuming that's useful for my brain health?
0: I think it's useful, yeah. The research on intermittent fasting really began with this guy, Mark Mattson over at NIH, who was showing us in animal studies in mice that intermittent fasting basically boosts levels of a protein called BDNF in the brain, it's sort of a great characteristic that you want if you want your brain to age to age well. You know, it's a lot more difficult to to look at what's going on in the brain of a human as compared to a mouse. Uh, you know, when we when we put mice through various interventions, you know, you can sacrifice the mouse and see all kinds of you know things that are happening. But in humans, it, that is not really quite as easy um, or as ethical. Uh, But intermittent fasting for people seems to have a number of positive effects on blood pressure, blood sugar regulation. And these are all very important, as I mentioned, when it comes to having, you know, optimal brain health. It's not like a magical thing, like, you know, but it does seem to make sense from the standpoint of circadian biology. Meaning, you know, as a human being, you're meant to eat during the day and to not eat too close to bedtime. Um, If you love eating just before you go to sleep and that's like the thing that you look forward to most every day, I mean, you can continue to do that and you're probably not gonna suffer much consequence from that. But I do think that spending more time in that fasted state is beneficial.
2: Okay, before you go, we're going to do a quick brain health lightning round. We're going to give you some things that we've heard that might be good for your brain health and we'd love to get your take on.
0: So into that? Yeah, let's do it.
2: My favorite, especially during 2020, alcohol. Specifically, red wine or liquor? Are there differences
1: between them?
0: Yeah. So alcohol, you know, I drink occasionally. I think drinking in moderation is fine, which is... You know, one to two servings of alcohol a day for men, one for women doesn't count if you concentrate them all to one or two nights at the end of the week. You know, like having seven drinks, you know, on a Friday night doesn't you can't you can't work the math that way. Unfortunately, I wish we could. But um, but yeah, I mean, seems to be beneficial from the standpoint of stress mitigation, social lubrication. These are all non-trivial benefits to moderate alcohol consumption. You know, if you're stressed out and if alcohol helps you, you know, be more engaged with your social circle, then I think that those are benefits that we need to respect. But alcohol is, um, ethanol is a neurotoxin. So if you can, uh, not drink, like if you can, if you can find more meaningful ways of, or, you know, I should say, um, more productive ways of dealing with stress and, um, being able to be social without the alcohol i would say that those that those are probably worthwhile endeavors and if you drink there are ways to drink you know more mindfully and more healthily so just making sure that you're staying hydrated and that you sober up before going to sleep i think that those are both two ways of making sure that you're you know that you're that the alcohol is not going to affect you negatively that much
3: okay next while we're talking about sobering up or the opposite cannabis thoughts
0: uh cannabis hmm I think that there are some interesting potential therapeutic uses for CBD. But I do think, you know, CBD has been used for certain seizure disorders for quite some time and um there is uh, there seems to be a sort of anxiolytic effect of it, you know, it's it as a way of reducing anxiety and um there are, you know, yeah, so in terms of its like medicinal use, I'm in favor of it. Um, which is not an area that I've really done too much of deep, you know, too, too deep a dive, but, uh, but so, yeah, so I'm like holding out hope for, you know, the new research on it as it comes out. But just in general, I'm not a fan of, you know, the CBD sparkling waters and, you know, what have you that, uh, that seem to be popping up everywhere.
1: I mentioned
2: puzzles at the beginning of this. Crossword puzzles, Sudoku, free cell. Are these good things for our brains?
0: Generally, I would say learning new things um, is very beneficial because by learning new things, you have more to lose before you lose it. And that is what is called cognitive reserve. And so by learning new, new things, whether it's a new language, whether it's a new um, skill based uh, physical activity activity um, uh, you know, a musical instrument or what have you, these are all great ways of, of boosting your cognitive reserve. Just over the past couple of months, I've learned a few new things. I took up boxing, which has been really fun. I'm not, uh, sparring. So for anybody, you know, wondering, I'm not, my head is not getting hit, which is, you know, very not good. If you're trying to avoid cognitive decline, you don't want to, you want to keep your head protected. Um, And I also learned to play with my brothers. I've enjoyed, you know, some of the time in quarantine spent uh, with my brothers. I learned to play poker. Oh,
2: Texas Hold'em, because that's my jam.
0: There you go. Texas Hold'em. Yeah, it's (laughs) been really fun. I'm not, I have not really been into cards my whole life up until, you know, just the past Uh couple of years. And then over the past couple of months, I learned poker and it's really fun.
3: Okay, next. Sex. Is sex good for your brain?
0: Sex is very good for the brain. Touch is uh, I think touch is crucial. Touch, in a way, is like a nutrient, you know. Um, and I think today we live in, in times of increasing social isolation, and I, I think that's just one more aspect of the modern diet and lifestyle that has really been counterproductive to our health. But, um, but yeah, sex is great. Communion with another person—it's um, just a beautiful, beautiful thing. And it's like we're just—we're hardwired to feel a sense of reward in doing that. So, yeah. Have at it. Just be safe, you know.
2: Love it. Coffee.
0: I love coffee. Um, It works for many people. It doesn't work for some. You know, you've got to kind of figure out your own relationship with it. The research um, on coffee seems to be mostly positive that people who drink more coffee seem to have some degree of protection against Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, and multiple sclerosis or MS. Um, but everybody reacts to it differently. So, if you have a lot of stress in your life, coffee could be sort of fueling that fire. Whereas, if you don't, then coffee, I think, could be a very positive addition. Um, I personally think that I have a pretty positive relationship with coffee, but every couple of months, I like to take a week or two or three off just to not have a dependence on it.
2: I have a very positive relationship with coffee as well. So yeah, <laughs> it's a committed relationship. both' it's committed very committed. It is very dependent, too. I I, I don't take breaks. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Finally, what about sleep?
0: Oh, man. Well, sleep is sleep is super important. I mean, we know that when we sleep, our brains actually are cleaning themselves. Um, there's a system in the brain called the glymphatic system, which has been named due to its resemblance to the lymphatic system, which is sort of the system of immune channels in the body. Um, where lymph fluid is pumped, it's sort of the, the, the body's backroads, roads, the, the body's garbage disposal system. We have something very similar to that in our brains where um, amyloid and tau, the two these two proteins that are associated with Alzheimer's disease, get flushed out um, while we're sleeping, particularly during, during slow wave sleep. These channels sort of swell um, by about 60% and cerebrospinal fluid, Swooshes throughout the brain, clearing out these proteins. And on, in fact, on one night of of shortened sleep, we see in cerebrospinal fluid an increase um, by about uh, fifty percent for tau protein and thirty percent for amyloid protein. Um, And so, you know, the assumption there is that you know more having more of this protein in the brain. Um, is going to increase the, the susceptibility of those proteins to cross-link and clump together and form the plaques that we associated with Alzheimer's disease. And, you know, all things considered, having less of that around um, is probably a good thing. So sleep is is super important from that standpoint. It's also very important from, well, for so, so many things. I mean, for hormone regulation, on one night of shortened sleep, you're basically pre-diabetic the next day temporarily but um but you know your insulin regulation your blood sugar regulation is is a little bit screwy the following day and that also can affect your hunger levels so I mean on on shortened sleep we all know that we tend to reach for um you know more junk foods the next day it just becomes a lot more difficult to moderate our consumption of of really rewarding hyper palatable foods so uh sleep is the one thing that I think it's like if you nail that, it's going to be the rising tide that lifts all the boats in your harbor. So I'm a, I'm a huge fan of sleep. I like to say that sleep is sacred.
2: Yeah. Okay. So if I'm summarizing everything we just learned, here's what like the perfect day would be like. Get good sleep, wake up, maybe have coffee uh, while I'm doing a crossword puzzle. <laughs> um, throughout the day, I am eating eggs, olive oil, almonds, wild salmon, dark leafy greens, all kinds of produce, non-processed foods. Then I have sex. Then <laughs> I might have a glass of wine. And chocolate-covered blueberries. Hello. And I wrap <laughs> the day with chocolate-covered blueberries. Is that the perfect day, Max?
0: That's pretty close. I mean, yeah, I haven't had a day like that in in some time, but that's a that's as Close as you get to a perfect day. You just, uh, the caveat, I guess, would be on the dark chocolate. You don't want to consume dark chocolate too close to bedtime because dark chocolate has caffeine and theobromine in it, which are stimulants. They've actually shown that dark chocolate um, to some degree affects the brain like bright light does. I try to eat my dark chocolate during the day, actually. And I've found that if I consume dark chocolate too close to bedtime, it, it negatively affects my sleep uh, significantly, actually. So I would say. Eat those blueberries as like a midday snack and stuff. Okay. Okay. That's but my one. I'll other th- other than that, <laughs> other than that, it sounded like an amazing day.
2: And what homework do you have for all of our listeners today as they're getting started on their brain health journey?
0: Oh man, what homework. Uh just, you know, to learn as much as you can, to be your own sort of advocate, um, and then to teach others in your life, you know, whether it's to take this episode, you know, this this podcast that, you know, your listeners have just have just made it through to the end of and to share it with their loved ones i think that's a really important way of paying it forward um and uh and yeah and deepening the relationships that you have with your with your loved ones um and then also acting on the information because information you know having that information is one thing but like acting on it like making those mental notes whether it's like putting post-it notes on your refrigerator or setting reminders for yourself with your smartphone you got to act on the information for it to be effective And um, and so, yeah, that's the homework.
2: Love it. Here's to happier, healthier brains. Max, thank you so much for chatting with us. And where is the best place for people to find you to learn more about your work?
0: Thank you guys so much. Um, Well, I'm very active on Instagram, so people can find me at Max Lugavere, L-U-G-A-V-E-R-E. And then uh, I've got my own podcast. It's called The Genius Life. And then my two books, Uh, my first book was called Genius Foods. And it's a New York Times bestseller. It's a nutritional care manual to the brain. Um, you'll do a very you know deep dive into dementia prevention, nutritional psychiatry, everything that we talked about. Um, and then my latest book is more about sort of environmental health, and that was called The Genius Life, same name as my podcast.
1: Max, thanks so much.
0: Thank you, guys.
1: Thanks for listening to Teach Me Something New, a production of iHeartRadio and Britton Co. I'm your host, Britt Morin find more information about each episode at Brit.co slash listen. You can also find me on social media. I'm at Brit or follow us at Brit and Co. Special shout out to my co-host Ange, who you can find on Instagram at Angelica Temple. Teach Me Something New is executive produced by Christine Swar and Ali Perry with additional production and sound design by Aaron Kaufman. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. See you next time.